to start off this new year, you know, I'd like to start a series of messages. And before I do, let me preference it with this. You know, it often appears that God is missing in our present day society. And I think we can all understand that. We see many places where obviously God is not there. God's not present um, with some folks. And I believe that part of the reason for that is because there's so many professing Christians today that do not know that the basic Bible doctrines. And maybe they're not equipped to um, share or they're not equipped with practical methods um, to share those truths with others. And because of that, it seems like that, yes, that God is missing in our present day society because we're not turning people into Christians. And some Christians are not acting like Christians. That's the way that that works. So today I want to start a sermon series um, entitled The DNA of Our Faith. The DNA of Our Faith. And the DNA standing for Doctrines Necessary for Application. That's what the DNA stands for in our series of messages here. So our goal over the next several weeks is to simply just teach some Bible doctrine as well as some practical methods for sharing those great truths with others. Now, this whole series of messages that I want to do hinges on today's topic. And today's topic is this, who is God? Can we answer that question? Who is God? But before we start, I want to admit right up front that maybe I've bitten off more than all of us can chew here because if the whole world cannot contain God, I certainly cannot categorize or catalog or index and, and present Him in a 30-minute in a package. There's no way that that can happen. In fact, as I approach today's message, I recognize how totally inadequate um, anything I say is going to be when it comes to explaining the nature of the Almighty. But thankfully, in His infinite wisdom and foreknowledge, God understood that man could never accurately reveal who he was and is and is to come. So what I believe, I really believe that God took it upon himself to reveal to us that which he most desired for us to know about him. And of course, that's what the Bible is all about. It's God's revelation of himself to us. So let me say this. Our goal today is not to explain God, but rather just to listen to what He's already said to us about Himself. We'll look at some of those things. So for those of you that would like to follow along in, in your scriptures, we're going to be in Acts 17 today, the 17th chapter of Acts. Now, this is the great, this great chapter there, in this great chapter, there are three relevant lessons um, to our subject today, at least that I've picked out. And the Apostle Paul and his words recorded in Acts 17, they show us a mission, they show us a method, and they show us a message that all relate to God's nature. So we're just going to jump right in here. First of all, let's consider Paul's mission field. Because it is from his mission field that we began or that we gain the, um, the text of all he's going to teach us about God. It's from where he was, the lessons that he taught, 
that's where we're going to start to learn the lessons that he wants to teach us about God. So let me give you some backstory here. In Acts 17, Paul found himself in the ancient city of Athens. You know, and that's on the southern peninsula of Macedonia. And here Paul was on his second missionary journey. And he had just been escorted from Berea to Athens by some unnamed brothers where he had been left alone to wait for his two partners, Timothy and Silas, to catch up with him. So you kind of get the picture here. Now, at one point, Athens, it was very important politically. It was a big political place. But now Athens was no longer very important politically because Corinth had become the the commercial and the political center um, of Greece under the Romans at this time. However, we don't wipe Athens off because Athens was still the university center of the whole world. Um, It was heir of the great philosophers. It was the city of um, Pericles and Socrates and Plato and Aristotle um, and Sophocles and others. And those men, they established patterns of thinking that impacted human learning for centuries. As a matter of fact, most of all human philosophies, they still follow in some degree the teachings of those men. And the Bible tells us that at this time, the Athenians, they were, uh, and all the foreigners that were there, um, who lived there, they spent their time doing nothing but, but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. They would get together and they would discuss things. Frankly, kind of a lot like the academic centers today where very arrogant people just sat around and exchanged their ignorance. Well, one of the things that they loved to discuss was this, was what they, in their own feeble minds, what they thought about and what they imagined God to be. That was one of the big subjects of the time. And as a result, idols had been created to represent all the different gods that they had created in their philosophies. One historian said that there was over 30,000 different idols. And some days it was easier to find a god than it was a man in Athens. And to top it all off, there was even an idol to an unknown god um, just to make sure that they hadn't missed one. So you can kind of see what kind of city Athens was. Well, of all the philosophies um, propagated in Athens, there were really two that dominated most people's thinking and way of life. There was kind of two that stood out above all the rest. And and frankly, folks, the scary thing is this. Those two schools of thought are making a major comeback in our world today. You can see those two schools of thought. First was Epicureanism. Now, the Epicureans, they were atheists. You know, they denied God's existence and life after death. They were also materialists. You know, they believed that this life was the only thing that really existed, and therefore, a man should strive to get the most out of it as possible. They had kind of the philosophy of get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the can. You know, they just wanted everything there. And they said pleasure 
is the highest virtue, which of course pain would have been its opposite. And their motto, and it still persists today, it was eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's what they lived by. They were what we would call modern-day existentialists, you know, living for the experience of the moment. But back then, it was known as Epicureanism. The second philosophy that's making a major comeback was Stoicism. Now, the Stoics, they followed the philosopher Zeno, and they were pantheists. And pantheism means that they believe that everything is God. They said that God does not exist as a separate entity. It doesn't happen that way. But he, she, or it is in the rocks, in the trees, in every material thing. And their attitude towards life was one of ultimate just resignation. You know, they prided themselves on the ability to take whatever came their way. Their motto in modern terms was grin and bear it. That was it. They urged modernism. They would say things like, don't get over-emotional either about tragedy or happiness. And frankly, apathy was regarded as the highest virtue of life to these um, Stoics. Now, these two groups, the Stoics and the Epicureans, they had heard Paul speaking in the public market, and they invited him to a meeting called the Areopagus, um, also known as Mars Hill there. And the Areopagus was, was a place where the city administrators were intellectual elite, where they would gather, where they would debate about those items in the city that should be public knowledge or those items which should be censored. Now, the truth of the matter is, folks, you and I have a very similar mission field. Because we live in a world of people who are searching for significance. Some are always looking for the next experience, the next high in life. And then on the other hand, others, they become so cynical and, and so apathetic that they are totally unmoved by anything in the world around them. You know, for many of us, our area pogus um, is the daily lunchroom or the water cooler at work or it may be our own kitchen or a classroom or a local coffee shop. You know, it's a public place where modern-day seekers and philosophers, they gather around each other and they discuss their opinions and, there's, and this, you know, about spiritual things. Some of them might ask questions, you know, and some of them may just listen before they judge our words and they expound on things concerning God. Um, and if we are wise we will learn some of Paul's tricks of the trade here um, in Acts 17. And that brings us to our second lesson this morning. Notice Paul's method of communication. First of all, he borrows from the contemporary to explain the transcendent transcend, or the exceptional here. You know, we don't notice a lot of scripture being used here like he would have in the synagogue. But instead, in verse 22 and 23, Paul says this. He says, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around, I looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, 
to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. And then he goes on to quote from their own philosophers and their own poets and such. You see what was going on here? Paul was looking around at his surroundings and he used whatever was present as a point of entry into deeper spiritual discussions. It would be like me using a, an illustration from a movie or, or a song or a commercial. You know, it set his audience at ease. And because it wasn't um, being offensive, there was no need for them to, to be on guard. So they weren't guarded about this. And if you think about it, Jesus was the master at this. You know, he was always stealing or, or taking um, from the moment to teach the eternal. Jesus used that technique a lot. And here's Paul using the same thing. Remember Jesus, you know, when these words, whose, whose inscription is written on this coin? Or tear this temple down and I will, I will rebuild it in three days? Or why not ask me for living water? Or two men built houses, one on a rock and the other on the sand. And before long, you know, Jesus was teaching people all about the kingdom. But he was using those things around him. The things that are around us every day. Um, and we need to do exactly the same thing. Every day, the newspaper or office politics or things in our own personal relationships, you know, offer us opportunities to open spiritual conversations with other people. Opportunities to speak in, in, in casual, non-threatening ways. But we must learn to be sensitive to our culture and all the open doors that God provides. And folks, God does provide those open doors if we're sensitive to what's going on. Also, the second thing, note that when Paul was given a chance to speak about God, he did. When he was given that chance, he didn't bypass it. He did. He used it. And his speech was always clear, and it was credible, and it was concise. In fact, one of the things that makes this chapter of Scripture such a communicative masterpiece is the way in which Paul, he summarized such gigantic spiritual truths in just a few paragraphs. When you read these paragraphs, you say, wow, you know, what? What a message here is packed in these few verses here. You see, it was his goal to plant seeds in his audience and then later come back and he would go deeper with those that wanted to go deeper or that was receptive to the message. Now that's the third part of his method that we need to imitate. Paul's communication always brought people to a point of decision. Paul's communication, it always brought people to a point of decision, either to reject or to repent or to walk away or investigate further or to call him names or to call upon the only name under heaven which we must be saved. You see, Paul spoke, when Paul spoke to things concerning God, men and women, they were always left with the decision to make about what they were going to do about this God to whom spoke to whom Paul spoke with such passion. Like, what are we going to do with God? What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about our relationship with Him? 
And folks, that's what exactly what happened here at the Areopagus. You know, look at verse 32. Some sneered, but others said, you want to, um, we want to hear you again on this subject. In other words, some laughed at him, some sneered, but there was others that said, okay, wait a minute. I want to hear more about this. So what exactly did Paul say on the subject of God that brought such a climactic response from these listeners? be a question that you have to ask when you're reading this passage of Scripture. Well, that brings us to the third lesson. That's Paul's message about God. Now think about this. Think about what's going on. Think about the incredible task that Paul had to speak about the one true God in the, in the midst of a city of over 30,000 different beliefs about God. And here's Paul has the opportunity to talk about the one true God. Well, the first thing we see in Paul's message is this, is the greatness of God. You know, number one, God is creator. Now, you're talking about greatness. That's pretty great. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Folks, God is different from every other created being. He alone is the uncreated spirit. Every other being that has ever lived was created, but not God. You see, the very essence of God is different than all other creatures. I mean, think about this for a moment. The reason you and I are called creatures is because we were created. We're creatures. And because we're created... We have certain limitations that God doesn't have. Now, there are three, at least three um, unlimited aspects of God. Number one, because He alone is the Creator, He is unlimited regarding time. He is unlimited regarding time. In Isaiah, the 44th chapter, verse 6, the Lord says, I am the first and the last apart from me. There is no God. You see, God is infinite. He's eternal. He has no beginning. He has no ending. In Revelation, the first chapter in verse 8, it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The second thing, God as Creator is also unlimited in regarding space. In regarding space. In other words, He's omnipresent. He's everywhere all at the same time. He's completely present and consciously active at all times in every part of space. And the third thing, thankfully, God is unlimited regarding power. Think about this. God didn't just build, but He spoke the world into existence. How powerful is that? To speak the world into existence. I would say that That trumps any power I know, and I think you would have to say the same thing. In other words, he's omnipotent, you know, or the Bible word is almighty for that. Certainly, if God can create this vast universe from nothing, he can do anything he wants to do. I think Psalms 118 verse 3 says it clearly. It says, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. That's how powerful God is. Now, the Old Testament character Job, 
he learned a great deal about God's absolute power. And in the last few chapters of his book, God asked Job a few questions to help Job gain some perspective about God in his relationship to man. And these questions are as follows. Look at chapter 38 and uh, starting with verse 4. It says, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand, Job. And then in verse 5, Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched out a measuring line across it? And then God continued in verse 12, Job, have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? And in verse 35, do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do, re, do they report to you? And, um, and then in the next chapter in verse 27, it said, hey, Job, does the eagle soar at, its, at your command or build its nest on high? And then back in ver, uh, chapter uh, 38, verse 22, have you ever entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of hail? You see, because God is transcendent, He is unlimited in so many ways. He is understandably incomprehensible to us finite creatures. We cannot fully understand who God is. That means that we can't really understand what God's nature is like. See, folks, everything I'm telling you about God today, it's true and it's accurate, but it cannot be completed because infinite minds uh, or finite minds cannot grasp the infinite. We cannot do that. I know Isaiah, the 40th chapter, verse 28 says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. Folks, he is the creator of the world. And Paul wanted his audience to understand that. They had created over 30,000 gods. But the God that Paul was talking about was not created. That was a big difference. You know, he was. He is the creator. You know, all the other gods, they're just pretenders. And folks, we need to get a handle on this and help other people get a handle on this. You know, understanding God as creator is the key to the universe. Because if he is the creator, then nature and people have a purpose. We have a purpose because God is the creator. But do you realize this? The truth that God is the creator is just as unpopular today as it was during this time or during this sermon on Mars Hill. There's a lot of people just don't believe that God's the creator. They don't believe in God. See, today the prevailing explanation by the ungodly for the origin of all things is evolution. That's what they want you to believe. You see, they're trying vainly to just explain away the origin of things so that they can take away any accountability of our actions. They don't want to have accountability for our actions. I like what C.S. Lewis had to say about God the Creator. He said this, there are, all sorts of different, or there are all sorts of different reasons for believing in God as Creator. I'll mention only one. He says, supposing there is no intelligence behind the universe, no creative mind, in that case... Nobody designed my brain for the purpose of thinking. 
It is merely that when the atoms inside my skull happen physically or chemical reasons to arrange themselves in a certain way, that gives me as a byproduct the sensation I call thought. That would be like upsetting a milk jug and hoping that the way the splash arranges itself will give you a map of London. You know, it's not going to happen. And he goes on to say, unless I believe in God the Creator, I can't believe in thought. So I can never use thought to disbelieve in God. Little boy's uncle was an agnostic. And one day on the farm, the uncle was trying to undermine the boy's faith. And he said, look here in this garden. Look at those pumpkins. He says, those big old pumpkins on those little tiny vines. Now look at that big oak tree there with such little acorns. And the farmer, he went on to say, it says, it looks like that if, if God knew what he was really doing when he created the earth, he would have put those big pumpkins on that big oak tree and those little acorns on that little vine. Well, just then an acorn happened to fall out of the tree and hit that man right on the head. And the little boy said, sure glad it wasn't a pumpkin, aren't you? <laughs> Who is God? He is creator. And Paul was simply trying to begin this evangelistic sermon that he was preaching by making that point from the very start. Folks, we've got to get that part right before we go anyplace else. God is the creator. God also is the provider. Look at verse 25. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. You see, here Paul, he's pointing out the absurdity of imagining that God, the creator of the universe, should need to be served by human hands. In Psalms, the 50th chapter, Verses 9 through 12 reads like this. God says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or a goat from your pen. Every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world is mine and all that's in it. You see, God is not dependent upon us. We're dependent upon God. You know, it's God who gives us what we need. In the first chapter of James, verse 17, it says, God is the source of every good and perfect gift. And in the Old Testament Psalms, chapter 54, in verse 4, it says, Surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. Listen, God is not only our provider, but He is a very good provider. That Romans, the second chapter, verse 4 tells us, or the Bible tells us that it is the goodness or the kindness of God that should lead men to repentance. Now, please remember this. As you're hearing this, remember this. You and I, we may understand this. We may get this concept. You and I understand it, but the world doesn't understand this idea. You know, the whole world is into, it's my body. It's my house. It's my money. Everything is mine, mine, mine. That's what the world is into. But we need to understand that God gave us everything we have, you see. And if you want to know the harsh truth, you really don't own your home. God gave it to you. You know, you're really not in charge of your finances. 
God is. Listen, true Christians really recognize that they don't even own their own bodies. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20 says, You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Who is God? He's provider. The third thing that Paul mentions was the government of God. God is ruler. God is ruler. Look at verse 26. From one man he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and boundaries of their lands. Now, at, this is probably the point that would have been the easiest for the Greeks to understand. When he made this point, this was probably the easiest for them to understand because, see, they believed in gods who ruled and who judged and who brought punishment down you know, upon the folly of men. They believed in all of that. However, there's one major difference. You know, their gods were distant. They were cold. They were uninvolved um, in the affairs of man. But God the creator, God the provider, God the ruler, the living God that you and I serve and that you and I worship is a ruler who cares and desires to have intimacy with us. I love verse 27 and 28. Look at this. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us, for any one of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. You see, he is ruler. He is Lord. The very essence of who we are is governed by who he is. You see, the world will tell you that there's many rulers, that there's many gods, that there's many lords. You know, from Allah to Buddha to the 10,000 different gods of Hinduism, but there is only one God who is creator, who is provider, who is ruler of all, and he's the Lord our God, the one that you and I we worship. You know, maybe you hear that and you say, that's right, that's right, preacher, preach it, and you want to say amen. Because you can come to my house and, and you'll not find any other gods in my living room. There are no other gods that I worship. And you say amen to that. But you know what? I feel sometimes that we're just as guilty as those Athenians who manufactured 30,000 gods because we're guilty of manufacturing false gods that we sometimes worship today. When we think about that, maybe money is your God. Maybe that's what's ruling you. It may be lust, or it may be gossip, or it may be some other secret sin. You know, you think that only you know about, but let me tell you something. Our God knows about it. It's not really a secret. I know in Jeremiah, the, the ninth chapter, verses 23 and, and 24 says this, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me. You know, our ruler has set this world in order and he desires to have complete control in a loving relationship over who we are. That's what our God desires. 
He wants us to trust Him, to acknowledge His sovereignty in our lives so that He can direct our affairs and give us life abundantly. You see, God wants to bless us, but we've got to have that relationship with Him. Listen to this. The bottom line is, He is ruler. And he, God will be acknowledged as such sooner or later. You know, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord one day. Well, verse 29 through 31 says this. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by a man he has appointed. And of course, we know that one day, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is God, is what? Is Lord, is ruler. Everyone's going to do that one day, but I can guarantee you it's better to do it sooner than later. It's better to do it before he comes than when he comes. It will be too late. And finally, number four, God is Redeemer. Now let's look at the end of that verse um, 31. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. By raising who? Jesus, that's right. God's appointed one who came to this world to restore that which the Creator lost in the garden. He will restore perfect intimacy, perfect provision, perfect lordship over all that He created. His love, think about this, His love for us drove Him to this earth to buy us back, to pay the price of the sin that we committed. Listen, no God that the Areopagus um, could invent or no God present then, no God that we invent today or no God that we could manufacture and worship can redeem us and restore us back to the original creation design. But the living, uncreated God who provides and rules and paid the price to bring us back. Folks, in as much as we can, we need to answer the question who God is. In as much as He's given us answers in the Scripture, we need to be able to answer that question and we need to be able to tell others that question. You see, when you come face to face with God, the Redeemer, your heart, it just opens wide and it bursts forth with praise because who God is. I mean, think about this. God is someone who just spoke the world into existence. Folks, that's power that we can't comprehend. I don't know how to comprehend that. We can go so far in understanding, and then we just stop, because our finite minds just will not handle it. So first of all, in this series of things, our DNA, we need to know who God is. Let's pray. Folks, we're so grateful. Father, we're just grateful for the fact that we can be here, we can worship you, we can look into your word. And Father, because you are just awesome, words cannot describe how awesome you are. 
And Father, we really recognize that and we just pay homage to you because of that. And it's because of that we have our, our life and our being and hope for eternity. Father, we just thank you for taking care of us in that way. Father, just now, if there's someone outside of Christ, we pray, we pray that you would just prick their hearts and your spirit would just lead them to say, you know what? I want God in my life. I want the one who created this world and created me. I want them in my life in a mighty way. Father, we pray that you would prick their hearts and would lead them to you. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.